Welcome to the Antioch Podcast. We're a justice-minded Christian church in beautiful Bend, Oregon, seeking and celebrating the reconciliation of all things. May the word of Christ dwell in you fully and give you peace. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Acts, chapter 17, verses 21 through 31. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So, you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and does not live in temples built by human hands, and he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations, that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Medell. Morning, church. Good to see you all today. My name's Pete, and uh, really glad that you're with us. Want to give all the moms in the house a shout out. Happy Mother's Day. Also want to wish my mom, Nancy Kelly, a happy Mother's Day. She watches online, so uh, she was actually supposed to be here with us this week, but instead she's home with a broken kneecap. So, such a bummer. So, love you, Mom. Happy Mother's Day, and uh, please just pay off the mob so they don't come after your other knee, so. (laughs) All right, we are in Acts 17 for the sixth Sunday of Easter. Seriously, every year at Kentucky Derby, she just loves betting on the ponies. I don't know. (laughs) If you're with us last week, we talked about martyrdom, being persecuted and killed for our faith. Uh, This week, we're talking about something even scarier evangelism. So get ready. Um, If your background's anything like mine, then evangelism is a word that probably comes with some baggage. Uh, Maybe you picture a slimy televangelist on TV with a fancy suit and a private jet, or an angry dude outside a concert waving a sign and yelling at people with a bullhorn. 
Or maybe you picture yourself 10, 20, 30 years ago as a high school or college student at a youth group event or a mission trip, being encouraged to be bold and share the gospel with people on the street, and you thought it was weird and you hated it, but you loved Jesus, and that's what you were supposed to do. Um, either way, if you've been around the church for a while, you've probably struggled in some way or another with the idea of evangelism. I even came across a book this week called Trauma-Informed Evangelism, right? This stuff runs deep. And the bummer is that in the biblical language, evangel means gospel, which means good news. So evangelism literally means announcing good news. That's the definition, which doesn't sound that bad, right? Usually telling someone good news is a pretty good experience. Like uh, this last week, our youngest daughter, Myla, had tryouts for her soccer club, and she'd been working hard and practicing every day. And so when Jen got the email, she ran into Myla's room and said, you did it, you made the team. And it's an exciting moment, right? Jen was getting to be an evangelist, a bearer of good news in that moment. So usually sharing good news with somebody is pretty fun. But that's not always how it feels when it comes to sharing our Christian faith with people. We love Jesus, and we know that the gospel is good news, but we don't want to be the kind of people that are imposing our beliefs on others. Or we don't want to come across as arrogant or judgmental or anything like that. And the truth is, we've all seen evangelism done really badly. Uh, Eugene Peterson tells the story of his first experience with evangelism when he was seven years old, and it's so good, I just have to read you part of this story from his memoir, The Pastor. He writes, I had been prepared for the wider world of neighborhood and school by memorizing, bless those who persecute you and turn the other cheek. I don't know how Garrison Johns knew that about me, some sixth sense that bullies have, I suppose. Most afternoons after school, he would catch me and beat me up. He also found out that I was a Christian and taunted me with Jesus, sissy. I arrived home every afternoon bruised and humiliated. My mother told me that this had always been the way of Christians in the world and that I'd better get used to it. I was also supposed to pray for him. <clears throat> and then one day, I was with my neighborhood friends, seven or eight of them, when Garrison caught up with us and started in on me, jabbing and taunting. And that's when it happened. Something snapped within me. For just a moment, the Bible verses disappeared from my consciousness, and I grabbed Garrison. To my surprise and his, I realized that I was stronger than he was. I wrestled him to the ground, sat on his chest, and pinned his arms to the ground with my knees. I couldn't believe it. He was helpless under me. It was too good to be true. I hit him in the face with my fists. It felt good, and I hit him again. Blood spurted from his nose, a lovely crimson on the snow. By this time, all the other children were cheering, egging me on. Black his eyes, bust his teeth. I said to Garrison, say uncle. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood, more cheering. And then my Christian training reasserted itself. I said, say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. He wouldn't say it. I hit him again, more blood. I tried again. Say I believe in Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. And he said it. Garrison Johns was my first Christian convert. <laughs> so good, huh? <laughs> 
So we've all seen evangelism done poorly. Uh, And whether that looks like coaxing a confession out of a, uh, a bully while we beat him up, or whether it looks like a foreign missionary effort that claims it's evangelizing, but it's actually colonizing. So sometimes it's tempting to get rid of evangelism. But for me personally, I just can't do that. Um, There are a bunch of reasons, but the main one is that it's part of the life that Jesus calls his followers to. Jesus himself was an evangelist. He was constantly announcing the good news of his kingdom to the people around him wherever he went. And Jesus calls his his followers then and now to go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. At the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus tells his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. This is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And as I like to say, you don't have to follow Jesus if you don't want to. But if you're going to follow Jesus, then you have to follow him in this as well. So what does that look like? What does it mean to live as witnesses of Christ? And how can we share the good news of Jesus in ways that sound like good news and in ways that actually look like Jesus? In our text today in Acts 17, I think we have one of the best examples for what it looks like to share the gospel of Jesus in a way that sounds like good news and looks like Jesus. So we're going to see what we can learn about evangelism from Paul's speech in Athens. So here's the setting. Paul is on a missionary journey. He's traveling around the Roman Empire, spreading the good news of Jesus. And he and his travel companions have come to Greece. They're in the city of Athens, the same one that's still there today. And Paul gets to Athens and spends some time walking around the city. And he notices that there's all these little statues and figurines and monuments all over the place. And that the people there are constantly bowing down and praying before these statues, hoping to gain favor with whatever God that statue represents. And then Paul gets this amazing invitation. He gets invited to come and speak at this famous place called the Areopagus. Areopagus comes from the name Eris, who was the Greek god of war, and the word pegos, which means hill or rock. So the Areopagus is the hill of Eris. In Roman mythology, the god of war is named Mars rather than Eris, so Areopagus is sometimes translated Mars Hill, which may sound familiar to some of you. So, Paul's been invited to come and preach at Mars Hill, this place that's famous for robust philosophical debates and discussions. And it was filled with the smartest, most educated, most eloquent uh, thinkers and writers and artists and educators in the world. And they basically say to Paul, hey, we've heard that you're traveling around telling everyone about this guy named Jesus who was crucified but then rose again from the dead. That sounds interesting. Would you tell us about him? Okay, so most of the time, opportunities for evangelism don't present themselves quite this clearly. (laughs) 
Usually there's a little more nuance or discernment required, but in this case, Paul is being asked to share the gospel with a bunch of people who want to know what it's all about. So what would you do in that situation? What would you say? How would you explain the good news of Jesus? Where would you even start? And you would think that for Paul, who's traveling around the world, speaking to different groups of people every day, he's probably got his stump speech, right? He's probably got his key talking points, his inspirational stories, his witty catchphrases that he uses every time as he spreads his message. But that's not actually what you see in Paul's evangelism at all. Instead, you see him creatively crafting his words based on where he is and who he's speaking to. So Paul rarely gives the same spiel twice. It's always contextualized or customized to who he's speaking to. And it's a fascinating thing. If you go through Acts and look at the different sermons that Paul gives to different groups, how radically different they are. And you especially notice these differences when you compare his messages to a Jewish crowd versus a non-Jewish crowd. Because when he's speaking to Jewish people, Paul's presentation of the gospel is thoroughly Jewish, rooted in the Jewish scriptures, appealing to Jewish spirituality and imagination and worldview. He goes through the story of the Old Testament and shows how Jesus is the fulfillment of all these prophecies and how he's the Messiah that God had promised the Israelite people. But when Paul's speaking to a non-Jewish crowd, he doesn't go into any of that stuff. Why not? because they don't have the same historical or religious background as the Jewish people. They don't care. And so Paul brilliantly takes this gospel of Jesus and communicates it in a way that makes sense in the worldview, the vocabulary, and the spirituality of the people to whom he's speaking. And so if you're Paul and you get the invitation to come share the gospel of Jesus with a group of philosophers who live in a city full of religious idols, how do you do that? Here's how Paul does it. He starts in verse 22. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Okay, so what we see here is that Paul begins to present the gospel in a way that makes sense to these people. There's no stump speech here. This is original material, completely contextualized, customized, and localized to Athens. And his whole speech is like this. Let me show you what I mean, and we'll do it by comparing Paul's sermon in Acts 13 in the city of Antioch to his sermon here in Acts 17 in the city of Athens. We don't have time to read the sermon in Antioch, so I'll just summarize it for you with this chart, and we'll look at the differences. So in Antioch, Paul refers to God as Yahweh, the covenant Lord of Israel. He's speaking to a Jewish audience, and that's the God that they know and worship. But when Paul goes to Athens, he doesn't talk about God that way. He describes God in totally different terms. This is a Greek audience. They don't care about the Jewish God or the Old Testament or any of that, and so instead, he depicts God as a transcendent creator. 
See in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And so Paul looks at this crowd of Greek philosophers and paints a picture of them, a picture for them of God that makes sense in that time and that place and to those people. Okay, back to the chart. How does Paul depict the problem of sin in each of these sermons? In Antioch, he confronts their sin of rejecting the Messiah. God's chosen one came and you rejected him. In Athens, they didn't care about the Jewish Messiah. Their problem is that they were worshiping idols instead of God. So in verse 29, he tells them, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. So he basically confronts these Greeks for worshiping a work of creation rather than worshiping the creator. That's how he explains what sin is to them. Okay? Next, who's Jesus in each of these sermons? When he's in Antioch, Paul presents Jesus as the son of David and the son of God, the long-awaited king of Israel. When he's in Athens, Paul presents Jesus as the risen one who will judge the world. In verse 31, he says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. That's how Paul depicts Jesus in Athens. And if that's who Jesus is, then how should the people respond? That's the next question. What's the response to the gospel? In Antioch, Paul tells them, well, receive the Messiah that you have rejected. Receive Christ as your Messiah King. In Antioch, or in Athens, sorry, he tells them, repent of your idolatry. Verse 30, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And then finally, what's the promise? If the people receive Christ as Messiah and repent of their idolatry, what does God promise to do? In Antioch, Paul promises them that God will forgive their sins. But in Athens, he promises them that justice is coming. God is going to put the world to rights. Again, verse 31, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And so Paul's gospel to these Athenian people is that a transcendent creator God has appointed a man to administer justice on earth, to make things the way they ought to be. So he tells them, stop worshiping your dumb idols and praying to your unknown gods and trust the one who's risen from the dead and overcome the world. That's Paul's gospel to the Greeks. One gospel, but he preaches it in two very different ways. In a whole bunch of different ways throughout the story of Acts. And so let's go back to our question. What can we learn about evangelism from the Apostle Paul. Because most of us aren't going to travel the world and give public speeches about our faith, but we are going to have opportunities to talk about Jesus with the people in our lives, whatever that may look like. So, how do we do that? 
What can we learn from Paul about sharing the good news of Jesus in a way that sounds like good news and looks like Jesus? I've got four tips for you. Number one, look for Jesus in everyone you meet. Some of the baggage that I personally carry when it comes to evangelism is that I was told it was my job to be Jesus to everyone I met. And it was kind of pitched like, hey, evangelism isn't that hard. You don't need to be super smart or have all the answers. All you need to do is go be Jesus to the world. And I'm like, that's great. Um, until you realize Jesus is perfect. Um, so that's my job description, huh? Just go be Jesus? Yeah, I'll do that. Uh, <laughs> I spent a lot of years trying to be Jesus to everyone. And it was exhausting and it was unhealthy. You know why? I'm not Jesus. <laughs> I know Jesus. I love Jesus. He lives in me. I live in him. But I'm not him, and I don't have to be. So what if instead of trying to be Jesus to everyone we meet, we try to find Jesus in everyone we meet? See, when Paul starts his sermon by saying, people of Athens, I see in every way you are very religious, we may not know this, but he's paying them a compliment that's hard for us to imagine, living in Bend, Oregon. If you want to give somebody a compliment, you don't say, wow, you're so religious, right? That's more of an insult in our culture. But for these folks, that was something that he saw in them and affirmed. Before he starts confronting their idols or anything like that, he points out something he sees in them that reminds him of Jesus. Did you know that anything true, good, or beautiful that you observe in another person is a reflection of God's image in them. Any of the character traits that you appreciate or admire in others, they're kind, compassionate, wise, generous, dependable, whatever it is, any time you see acts of truth, beauty, or goodness in somebody, no matter who they are or what they believe, you're getting a glimpse of who Christ is in that person. I remember a few years ago, I was out in our cul-de-sac with uh, another dad in the neighborhood and we were watching our kids ride their bikes around and stuff. And at one point there was a situation with the kids that required some parental intervention. And uh, this other dad kind of got out there and helped him work it out. And I remember being really impressed with how he handled the situation. And I was about to mention that and kind of compliment him on what a good daddy was. And then, this is seriously messed up, there was something in me that thought, oh no, I can't do that. I'm the Christian here. I'm supposed to be Jesus to him. So if I compliment him, then I'm giving him the moral high ground. And this stuff is messed up, right? <laughs> what if instead of having to be Jesus to this guy, I could actually find Jesus in this guy? And so I just said, dude, that was really well done. You are a good dad. And it was this like really simple, normal compliment that opened the door to a whole world of conversation and relationship about what we believe and what we're trying to do. So you don't have to be Jesus. Just get to find Jesus in whoever you're talking to. And when you see him, don't be afraid to name it. That's number one. Number two, 
Proclaim truth wherever you find it. Notice that twice in Paul's sermon on Mars Hill, he quotes their own Greek poets. In verse 28, for in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Okay? Paul's not quoting Old Testament prophets like he often does. He's quoting modern day Greek poets. These are poems written by non-Christian, maybe even anti-Christian poets. But not only does Paul know these poems, he finds the truth in them and he redeems it. He takes pieces of their culture and uses them to communicate the gospel. So I think if Paul were around today, his evangelistic conversations would be full of references to whatever's happening in the world and whatever movies or TV shows or podcasts or books people were into. He claims truth wherever he can find it. So by the way, this may help you understand some of my preaching a little bit better. Uh, I know some of you were pretty surprised when I quoted Nine Inch Nails in my Easter sermon a few weeks ago. Um, I'm guessing that was the first in the history of Easter sermons. Um, I'm pretty committed as well to claiming truth wherever it can be found. So I've told this story before, but a few years ago when we lived in Corvallis, I was having coffee with a friend who was a professor of nuclear engineering, and he'd been an atheist his entire life, but he was finding himself drawn to Jesus for the first time. And he knew I was a pastor, and so we got together and talked about it. Now, remember at one point, he said, I, I still don't believe in God, but as a scientist, I've always, I've always believed that there's this thing called love at the center of the universe that science can't explain and it's the thing that's holding everything else together. Now this guy's a nuclear engineer, he's got a PhD, pretty intelligent guy, and I'm hearing the truth in what he's saying. And so I asked him, well, what if love isn't a thing, but it's a person? What if God is love, and he's the one at the center of the universe that's holding everything else together? And he said, well, that would be a God I could believe in. So he was 99% of the way there, right? I just got to claim that last little bit of truth and help him put it all together. I got to baptize him several months later when he came to faith in Christ, and he's still a close friend today. And so wherever it comes from, conversations, experiences, news, pop culture, nuclear engineering, all truth is God's truth. So claim it wherever you find it. Number three, listen more, talk less. Usually we think of evangelism as talking. But if you're going to have any shot at sharing the gospel in a way that resonates with the particular person in front of you, then you'd better spend a lot of time listening first. For Paul, since he was speaking to a large group of people, listening looked like observing the culture carefully. Verse 23, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. See, before he said anything, he looked carefully at these people's lives, at their context, because he really wanted to know them. He really wanted to understand these people. 
He cared about the specifics of who they were and how they saw the world and what it was like to be them. He didn't care so that he could use it against them and to win an argument or something like that. He cared so that he could, he could know where Jesus might want to bring hope and healing to their lives. So when you're involved in gospel conversations and relationships with the people around you who believe differently or live differently than you, evangelism looks like listening more and talking less. The best evangelists are the best listeners. There's a Mennonite professor of counseling named David Augsburger who says it like this. Being listened to is so close to being loved that most people can't tell the difference. Finally, number four, speak freely about the one you love. In both his sermons in Antioch and in Athens, Paul uses radically different language and concepts to communicate the gospel, but at the end of the day, he wasn't presenting a a set of philosophical ideas or theological doctrines. In the end, he was simply telling them about a person named Jesus, a man who he loved who had changed his life forever. And in that sense, evangelism is actually like the most normal thing in the world. Because we're all evangelists when it comes to the things we love. When we eat a new restaurant or find a new series on Netflix or discover a new biking trail or whatever the thing is that we're excited about, when we meet a new guy or a new gal, we can't help but tell the people around us about the things that we love and we're excited about. We don't do it because we're supposed to like if there's some, as if there's some sort of duty or obligation. We do it because we want to. We're compelled to share the things that we love with others. It's just how we're wired. So in my observation, we talk about a lot of things that we love, a lot of things that are important to us, but for whatever reason, many of us hesitate when it comes to talking about Jesus. And I'm telling you, you don't need to be someone who's into philosophical discussions or theological debates to do evangelism. You're free to simply speak freely about the one you love. Tell them your story. Tell them how you see the the world. And it doesn't have to be weird. Let me close by again acknowledging that evangelism is a loaded topic for many of us. Some have been traumatized by it in one way or another. But learning to share the good news of Jesus with the people around us has always been part of what it means to be followers of Christ. See, the mission of Christ's church has always involved two simultaneous commitments. And we could call them evangelism, and social justice. They're two sides of the same coin, showing and telling the gospel of Jesus, demonstration and declaration, participation and proclamation, word and deed, audio and video. I would say Antioch has a strong culture and reputation for being a church that cares deeply about justice. And I love that about us. 
I hope it never changes. But let's not forget that every bike has two pedals and you need them both. So let's keep pursuing justice. Let's keep serving the poor and standing with the oppressed and welcoming immigrants and confronting white supremacy and caring for the earth and animals and waging peace wherever we can. Wherever we can. We're never going to stop doing that. But let's also make sure that we aren't ashamed to preach the gospel that we practice. Let's make sure that we always seek to honor God and love our neighbors by sharing with them the hope that we found in Christ. Let's make sure that we always speak the truth in love, that we live lives that require a gospel explanation. The video works, but let's make sure the audio is not muted. Antioch, you're not alone in this. First, you're part of a community that's bearing witness to Christ's kingdom together. This is never something you were meant to do on your own, but us, as the family of God, we get to both practice and proclaim the good news of his kingdom to our neighbors here in Central Oregon and to the ends of the earth. So we need each other and we get to do it together. You aren't alone in that sense, but more importantly, you're possessed by the spirit of Jesus. When Jesus called us to be his witnesses, it was with the gift of his Holy Spirit coming upon us and empowering us. The one who would guide us into all truth and give us the words of wisdom and knowledge and love we, we need in the moments we need them. So it's not up to you to go out and save the world. You're simply called to speak of Jesus and trust that the Spirit will lead people into truth. Let me pray for us. Lord Christ, we are so grateful to be the recipients of this gospel that truly is good news of great joy for all the people. We're grateful for the people in our life who shared the gospel with us, the ones who introduced us to you, whether that was our parents or a friend, a, a coworker, a neighbor, a, whoever it was, thankful we are, Lord. And so we pray that you would help us to speak of you well to learn how to communicate the good news of who you are and what you've done to save the world in a way that truly sounds like good news to our neighbors and reflects your character. And we thank you for the gift of your spirit. We pray that even this week, as we navigate our daily lives, that you would lead us into conversations and relationships and opportunities to listen well and to love our neighbors by sharing about the hope that we found in you. We're so grateful to be the recipients of this gospel and also now to be messengers of it as well. We need you to do this work and to be these people. So Spirit of God, fall on us in a new way. In Jesus' name, amen.